Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. I deserve good things. I am entitled to my share of happiness. I refuse to beat myself up. I am an attractive person. I am fun to be with. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. And you may recognize those daily affirmation words from Stuart Smalley, a semi-frequent character of Saturday Night Live back when it wasn't just I bleed awful. These words were said in jest, trying to get some yuck yucks from the viewers. But the reality is, this appears to be the prevailing view of many, if not most, people these days. Sure, other people probably exist, but what does that have to do with me? We're talking about me. Try to focus. On today's episode, you'll find out that the universe loves me, this I know, for the science tells me so. Then I'll make some sweet cash, just for being me. And finally, you say we the people, I say me the person. So, dust off your existential crisis, pull up your Amazon wish list, and get out your quill, because here me go. If there's one thing we know for sure, it's that, quote, the anthropic principle has fascinating scientific uses, where the simple fact of our existence holds deep physical lessons. Don't abuse it. And so help me if I even hear a rumor that you're abusing that. We, sir or madam, will have words. Words, I say. Don't try me. I'm a donkey, a podcaster on the edge. Now, you may say... I absolutely do not want to tempt fate, but what in the world is the anthropic principle? Okay, it's a fair question. Let me tell you. This is taken from Wikipedia because, honestly, the dictionary definition wouldn't have helped much. And quite frankly, this doesn't really seem to either, but here we go. Quote, The anthropic principle, also known as the observation-selection effect, is the hypothesis first proposed in 1957 by Robert Dickey that there is a restrictive lower bound on how statistically probable our observations of the universe are because observations could only happen in a universe capable of developing intelligent life. Proponents of the anthropic principle argue that it explains why this universe has the age and the fundamental physical constants necessary to accommodate conscious life, since if either had been different, we would not have been around to make observations. Anthropic reasoning is often used to deal with the notion that the universe seems to be finely tuned for the existence of life. (laughs) Okay, that didn't help a lot, did it? So if I were to boil it down, I guess I'd understand it like this. We're here because we know we're here, and we know we're here because we're here, which is kind of what our article found on BigThink.com implies when asking headline, we exist, what can that fact teach us about the universe? Now, before I get into the article, this is actually a really good question. From a holistic perspective, This is a question that we all should, and eventually we all do ask. Questions like, why am I here, and 
What happens when I die? Where did we come from? What is all of that out there, and why is it out there? You know, those types of existential questions that necessarily arise in all of us at some point if we take 30 seconds to be alone with our own thoughts. So the article starts with saying that the fact we exist within the universe means that the universe has to play by the rules that allows us to exist. And that fact can lead to some, quote, extremely powerful scientific and philosophical conclusions. The author warns us to be careful, though. We could go too far, and then he commands us, quote, the anthropic principle must not be abused. Okay, so first of all, because the universe is a self-created entity, they tend to anthropomorphize it, right? They give it human characteristics. First, he capitalizes the word universe. Okay, so I was curious. Should universe be capitalized? Well, after doing an extensive search of the web, I looked at the first two results from the first search I did. LiveScience.com says, quote, the universe, or universe with the capital U, is a lot like God in that copy editors disagree about whether you should capitalize it. Um, okay, look, I, I kind of feel that the capitalization of God is fairly simple. If you're using it as the name or you're referring to the one true God, it's cap. If it's just any old God, then no. And that's kind of what the second result says. From English.stackexchange.com, they say, quote, you use the capitalized universe when you're talking about the universe. You use the lowercase universe when you're talking about any old universe. That's a common noun. There. I guess we're clear about that now. Anyway, not really the point. The author says that the capital U universe must play by the rules. Well, let's be clear. The universe can't choose not to follow the rules and laws that are laid out for it. And it also can't choose to follow them. It's not actually a being. It's a big empty void that has some stuff that's been put in it. Second, this is a chicken and the egg type of thing, not which came first, universe or humanity, as I think we all agree that humans weren't just floating around in a big nothing, and then space came about, then planets and stars. No, no, no. The question is, were humans created for the universe, or was the universe created for humans? See, it's not that the universe decided to be human-friendly. It's that the universe was designed to have one galaxy with one solar system with one planet that was human-friendly. So the author says that science and philosophy has pondered our existence for millennia, and we've learned many of the laws that govern the universe, but there are still a lot of unknowns. And I'd agree. But while certain things seem to be true for everyone, other things seem to be dependent on the observations or actions of the observer. Eh, okay, I tentatively agree, at least with the premise. Let's get into the meat of this article, though. As the author claims, quote, Here's what the simple fact that we exist can teach us about the nature of our reality. I don't know about you, I'm pretty excited about this. He first postulates that we understand at least some fundamental governing rules, like gravity and how gravity works at a quantum level, and that matter and energy curve space-time, and curve space-time dictates the motions of matter and energy moving through it. You know, the basics. But the outcome of this almost embarrassingly obvious statement led to physicist Brandon Carter back in 1973 to formulate two statements. Now hold on to your socks here. Number one, 
We exist as observers here and now within the universe, and therefore the universe is compatible with our existence at this particular location in space-time. And number two, and that our universe, including the fundamental parameters on which it depends, must exist in such a way that observers, such as ourselves, could exist within it at some point. Okay, let me boil this gumbo down. I think you boil gumbo, right? I don't know. I, I won't ever eat gumbo. Anyway, what this physicist is attempting to say with a lot of smartosity is uh, the universe is compatible with human life and vice versa. Now, I'd qualify it with uh, a very specific pinpoint in the universe is compatible, but this is basically what he's saying. Now, our author is very impressed by this, saying that because of those two statements, if and only if we use them properly, can they, quote, enable us to draw incredibly powerful conclusions and constraints about what our universe is like. Ooh, that sounds very sciencey. He then, in the next paragraph, restates the same thing with the words in a slightly different order that he's stated multiple times already. And then the next paragraph is him stating it again, but he makes both statements negative, but still the same thing. Then in the next paragraph, I'm not kidding, he says it again, but this time throws in the fact that it, uh, you know, just kind of it allows us to evolve. And then, then he says what we're all thinking, quote, it doesn't seem like this statement should be controversial. It also doesn't seem like it teaches us very much, at least on the surface. No, no, don't say that. Don't you ever say that. And then he says again that this is very powerful. Now we're nearly 700 words into his article, and he said this one thing, and that it's powerful. And if by powerful he means it enables him to write about half of his article, like, I wrote papers in college, then sure, I mean, I see the power of this anthropic principle. Then, and oh boy, then he says, we're made of atoms, and a lot of them, their atoms are carbon atoms. And that means that the universe, capital U, quote, must have created carbon in some fashion. Remember, Christianity and an immortal, sovereign, omnipotent God that created is religion, which is nothing but a fairy tale for a weak mind. But, quote, the universe must have created, ah, that, my friends, is science. He walks through the basic Big Bang theory that the Big Bang created the lighter elements like hydrogen and helium and their isotopes, and the heavier atoms are obviously created inside of stars. I mean, we all know that, right? Duh, science. But, and if your socks are still on, hold on to them again, and I'm paraphrasing slightly here, per their theory of evolution, the fact that carbon exists must mean that there was a way to form carbon. Okay, that sound you're hearing? That is your mind blowing. Then he gives two paragraphs on the theory of how carbon formed. Then he tells us about old smart guy physicist Fred Hoyle and how he apparently not only understood how carbon formed, but also the anthropic principle. No, 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 no. Neither this author nor Hoyle is a god, capital or otherwise, despite what you may think. Okay, then he says something interesting, finally. His second powerful application of this anthropic principle is that we can understand the, quote, vacuum energy of the universe. Now, 
This in layman's terms is basically remove everything from space. That's matter, light, radiation, etc. everything. And we know that the laws of physics still apply. Now, he kind of glosses over that. But the fact that the laws of physics apply, that's kind of an interesting fact. It's fine, we'll move past it too. And when applying what we know, calculating the energy of the resulting vacuum, that value doesn't make any sense. It actually shows that there would have been so much vacuum energy at a fraction of a second after the Big Bang that it would have recollapsed the universe immediately. His conclusion, quote, clearly the answer we get from doing that calculation is wrong. Now, I'd have to ask, um, is it? Maybe rather than back up and say, hey, we need to figure out how to get a result we want, maybe they should change their theory. You know, just saying. Unfortunately, quote, although we still don't know how to calculate it today, physicist Steven Weinberg calculated an upper limit on what it could possibly be back in 1987, making astonishing use of the anthropic principle. The energy of empty space determines how quickly the universe expands or contracts, even apart from all the matter and radiation within it. If that expansion or contraction rate is too high, we could never form life or planets, stars, or even the molecules and atoms within the universe. If we use the fact that our universe has galaxies, stars, planets, and even human beings on one of them, we can place extraordinary limits on how much vacuum energy could possibly be in the universe. Weinberg's 1987 calculation demonstrated that it must be at least 118 orders of magnitude. That is a factor of 10 to the 118th power smaller than the value obtained from quantum field theory calculations. Extraordinary limits indeed, I might say. So did you catch that? The anthropic principle says we exist, so your calculations must be wrong. Not being a quantum mechanics or even a calculus guy, I'd bet that calculating the energy of a vacuum is a relatively well understood calculation. I'd say that their result is probably correct. And maybe, and just just hear me out here, maybe there's another force, an incalculable force that holds this universe together. Now, his next proof of this principle is regarding dark energy. Now, I did a segment on dark energy a while back. You can go back through your well-cataloged file of my past podcast to find it, but the bottom line was that there wasn't enough this is some sort of, I don't know, negative energy that we can't see. It balances out the visible energy in the universe. It was something like that. And it should be a one-to-one -one relationship. Otherwise, the universe uh, couldn't exist. Well, our anthropically awestruck author says that when dark energy was discovered in 1998, it was 120 times too low. But if you throw in the fact that we exist, then um, there, problem solved, right? In 1986, the two principles were restated by a theoretical physicist, John Barrow, that are basically the same as before, but tweaked slightly to say that, quote, the universe must allow carbon-based intelligent life, and that hypothetical universes where that life does not develop are not permitted. 
Now, this to me is the same as uh, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a sound? Which, yes, based on sound being nothing but air pressure waves, it doesn't matter. Not the point. This basically says a universe that doesn't allow life can't exist. But how would we know that? Okay, we wouldn't exist, right? And since Beryl realized that this was controversial and impossible to support logically or scientifically, he and his co-author threw out a few other alternatives as well. First, the universe, as it exists, was designed with the goal of generating and sustaining observers. Second, observers are necessary to bring the universe into being. Or third, an ensemble of universes with different fundamental laws and constants are necessary for our universe to exist. The author then comments about these potential theories. Quote, Every one of these scenarios might present a fascinating feast for the imagination, but they all represent incredibly speculative leaps in logic and make assumptions about cosmic purpose and the relationship between observers and reality that aren't necessarily true. Now hold on, Professor. I agree that saying a universe must sustain life is both illogical and unscientific. You're falling back on the statistical laws of probability there. I agree that observers are necessary to bring the universe into being. That's basically the Schrodinger's cat argument thing. The cat in the box is both alive and dead at the same time. Opening the box brings one of those two realities into being. Sorry, this one is both illogical and unscientific also. You can't have an observer if there's nowhere to put said observer. The last one, necessitating multiple various universes in order for ours to exist, that again is illogical and unscientific. It's, it's just a probability thing again. Logically, you could have an infinite number of universes and never have one like ours. But the universe exists because it was designed. That may not be scientific, at least from the standpoint of our human science, but that is logical. If a creator exists, if, go with if, if a creator exists, it would logically follow that that creator can create. He wraps up by cautioning us on the misuse of the principle, but the fact that we exist and the laws of nature exist means that the principle holds true. So, as we've seen with other articles, the author gets so close and then misses it entirely. He's right, we exist. He's right, the fact that we exist must mean something. He's right about the laws of nature, the laws of physics. Those exist, and we know it. But then he traps himself in a logical loop. We exist, so the universe must be conducive to life. Because of that, we exist. And around and around you go. This is why he, and apparently scientists, can't accept the fact that we don't have enough dark energy or dark matter, or that the vacuum energy is too high, which is the same reason why all laws of physics have to come into being milliseconds after the Big Bang, because you can't have the laws of physics and the Big Bang at the same time. Of course, the fact that the way everything in the universe was squeezed into something that was so infinitesimally small that you couldn't see it, I mean you have to suspend all laws of logic, as well as your laws of physics. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, from this we learn that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, was the creator of all things. We also see that in him all things hold together, both visible and invisible. Dark energy. See, science has discovered a lot of answers about a lot of things, and this can only be done because laws were put in place first. If evolution was true, gravity would be random, for for instance. If evolution were true, everything would be random. It would be chaos. We'd have a mass of variability of everything on different planets, even on our own planet. Science can't explain why the universe exists. There are too many things we know, or at least we're pretty confident we know, that tells us that not only should we not exist, but neither should anything. But the reason, the single reason the universe doesn't just fall apart, the reason that laws of nature are laws, the reason that laws of physics and logic hold true, is because we have an all-powerful God that designed it that way, designed us that way, and designed the solar system that way. And he ensures that it's stable and uniform. So to answer the question in the headline, we exist, what can that fact teach us about the universe? Well, it teaches us that none of this should be here. None of us should be here. So there must be something outside of so-called science, outside of random chance that set things up and set things in motion and holds things together. If science would dive in and study that, oh my goodness, would they ever make some amazing discoveries that would blow their minds? I've come to the conclusion that my parents hate me. I know that's a controversial statement. I know that they'll eventually hear this, but I have no other option than to believe the hatred is deep with them. I can even pinpoint it. It was about 30 years ago, after I turned 16. See, when I was young, I used to get an allowance. It wasn't much. Of course, with inflation these days, it's equivalent to something like $50,000 a week. I don't know, something like that. I'm assuming. I didn't really check with the inflation calculator. My allowance didn't cover all of my wants to be sure. So sometimes they let me borrow from them for whatever, and then I'd get too far behind, and then we'd have our own little sabbatical month of sorts, and all debts were forgiven. Now, don't get me wrong. That was nice of them. But then I turned 16, and I got my first job at the local Hardee's, and they stopped giving me money. The hatred begins. And they've never given me any sort of spending money since then. Thus, the hatred clearly and obviously, continues to this day. I mean, how could I conclude anything else, especially after coming across this article found on the Blaze.com headline, Guaranteed Income Programs Spreading Across U.S.? Yes, the idea of the guaranteed or universal basic income, or UBI to you and me, is becoming popular. And why wouldn't it? I mean, as Dire Straits said... That ain't working. That's the way you do it. Get your money for nothing. Get your chicks for free. Now, I don't know why they were interested in getting free poultry, but the allure of money for nothing is really kind of what we all want, if we're being honest, right? Whether it's hitting the lottery, an unexpected inheritance from a long-lost relative, a million-dollar yard sale find... 
I think I'd be pretty safe in saying that at least at some point, we've all dreamt about being independently wealthy. Just do what you want, when you want, where you want, and never have to worry about a budget or balancing your checkbook. Just live without a care in the world. For a select few, pro sports stars, Hollywood elites, mechanical reliability engineers, crooked politicians... (laughs) but I repeat myself, a life of wealth is guaranteed. For the rest of you, us, you, we have to work, usually hard, in our selected craft or career, and that's usually just to make it. Maybe put some money back for retirement, pay for college for the kids, buy a new car or a new-to-you car, maybe take some vacations, it just depends. But for most of us, extreme wealth isn't typically a burden that's been strapped to our shoulders. For many, not only is extreme wealth not the concern, but the fact that there is too much month left over at the end of the money, that's the real problem. They're not even living check to check. They're scratching and clawing just to survive. Throwing the COVID so-called pandemic and the studies have shown totally unneeded and unbelievably damaging and stupid lockdowns and the calls for guaranteed income have started picking back up again. So what is this? Where did it start? Most importantly, is this something that should be done? What does the Bible say? Well, universal basic income was an idea that has its roots going back a couple hundred years, but for our purposes, this idea in the United States was proposed for the first time in the 1930s by Huey Long. He was a Louisiana senator who blamed capitalism for poverty. (laughs) Sound familiar? At this time, the Great Depression was in full swing, and the arguments can be had as to what caused it. I'm not going to bother getting into that fray right now. The bottom line is that at the height of the Depression... One in four people were unemployed. Huey Long proposed giving everyone $2,000 a year as a minimum income. From what I can find, and data is a little tough to come by, that would have been about 80 million adults, 18 plus. So let's say that the United States government gave 80 million people $2,000 a year. That's $160 billion a year, which doesn't sound like a lot. But remember that $2,000 in, say, 1935 would be about $43,000 today, equating to about $3.4 trillion a year for universal income. In 2021, the estimated federal tax revenue for a country now of nearly three times the population of 1935 and over three times the population of adults of 1935 was $3.9 trillion. I'm not entirely sure where old Huey thought they'd get all that money from. He didn't push this idea too long, though. He was assassinated. Just FYI, if we had done, and were continuing to do this, with about 264 million adults at $43,000 a year because we kept up with inflation, that would be $11.4 trillion in universal basic income per year. The total money in circulation in the world as of right now is about 40 trillion, to give you some scope. Well, after Huey was picked off, Francis Everett, a physician from Long Beach, California, wanted the government to give people 60 and over who were retired $200 a month, or about $4,300 a year. This also didn't happen, but keep in mind, Social Security. So it didn't happen, but it kind of happened, right? Kind of. 
Martin Luther King Jr. was a proponent of UBI to get us to national justice and equality. Yeah, just FYI, MLK Jr., he was very good in his civil rights struggle. Not a great guy in just about any other area. I mean, sorry, but that's the truth. The Black Panthers wanted UBI. They said the country owed the people either guaranteed income or guaranteed jobs because the economic system was unjust. Milton Friedman and Richard Nixon at separate points in time pushed for a sort of negative income tax, basically giving money to everyone rather than deal with the welfare system. <laughs> Don't worry, though. It would be a progressive type of thing based on income or lack of income. We now have the earned income tax credit, which is basically a negative income tax, but it requires people to work, and it didn't eliminate the massive welfare system at all. It just got tacked on, and on and on we go. In fact, when you look at all of the potential welfare, retirement, and unemployment resources, one could argue that we actually have a UBI right now. But the proponents of this kind of handout want more. They want cash in hand every month for everyone, working, not working, able to work, not able to work, old, young, and about the only disqualification would be for those, <laughs> those evil evil rich. You know, the evil rich that by their investments, their jobs and business creations, their taxes would be paying for this UBI. As of right now, the United States has no state or federal level UBI. There have been a few specific locales that have instituted a UBI to some degree. Mayor of Stockton, California, Michael D. Tubbs, founded a program called Mayors for a Guaranteed Income. He also started a program in 2019, when he was 29 years old, and yes, I think that matters, to give $500 a month to a grand total of 125 low-income residents for 24 months. This money was managed by the city, but the money came from private funding. You know... <laughs> by evil rich people. So a grand total of $125,000 was donated by rich people, and 125 people got an extra $6,000 a year. Which, look, I wouldn't throw it out, but in the grand scheme of things, that's not really a lot of money today. Let's be honest. Now, side note, Tubbs, a Democrat, <laughs> shocker, I know, in a city of two-to-one Democrats to Republicans, lost his mayoral race in 2020, to a Republican pastor with very little political experience, 56% to 43%. So, you know. In 2018, the Magnolia Mothers Trust gave 20 black mothers in poverty $1,000 a month in Jackson, Mississippi. It's now expanded to 110 moms. <laughs> Sorry, black moms. Again, this is done by a private fund. In 2021, the Equity and Transformation Nonprofit started an 18-month cash assistance program of $500 a month in Chicago for 30 ex-convicts. Ah, sorry, 30 black ex-convicts. And since starting this also privately funded program, they've expanded to over 50 ex-cons. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, you know. Of course, this nonprofit and its backers also want to defund the police and defund prisons and defund pretty much anything to do with law enforcement, you know, because of uh, racism or, or something. 
Andrew Yang, a previous presidential candidate, was advocating for the Freedom Dividend, which would be a UBI of $1,000 a month for every American adult. The plan would be for it to keep up with inflation, but other than that, stay flat. According to Yang's website, quote, This would enable all Americans to pay their bills, educate themselves, start businesses, be more creative, stay healthy, relocate for work, spend time with their children, take care of loved ones, and have a real stake in the future. I mean, okay, look, again, from my perspective, $12,000 is nothing to sneeze at. But would it really do all of those things, or really any of those things? I mean, Maybe you could help with a few, but most of those are well out of the reach of $12,000 a year, especially if that's your only income or the income you're combining with assistance benefits or a Hardy's job to live on. And now, one website, citybureau.org, claims that 30 cities or more have launched some sort of UBI program as of the summer of 2022, some are done by the city, some are done by private firms, some are a combination. Now, as you can probably tell, I'm skeptical, and that skepticism is based on a few things. First, the money to do this literally doesn't exist. If we wanted to implement this like Andrew Yang wanted, for every single person over 18 years old, the money just literally is not there. It would collapse this country in a matter of months as we printed cash at a rate that would make our current printing look sluggish. The more cash we shove into the system, the less that cash is worth. The less that cash is worth, the higher the inflation goes. Eh, but what could possibly go wrong with that, right? <sighs> Second, this amount of money is never in replacement of welfare programs. It's in addition to. Every single time, it's in addition to. So the hope is that if this money is doled out, it would be shoved right back into the economy, which it would be, at least in large part. So the government's tax revenues would go up, but taxes aren't 100% or more of income, at least not yet, or of sales or whatever. I mean, they can't get back a larger return on their investment. So we continue to lose money as a country. Third, Yang says that you can start businesses. But for those in poverty, this would be money used to survive. For middle-class people like me, this would be for paying off the house faster, or upgrading things, or possibly putting in savings. I'm not starting a business with $12,000 a year extra. I'm not hiring employees with that. And for those that are starting businesses, I mean, sure, for some, this would definitely help. But I have serious doubts that this amount of cash would be the funds that would tip the scales for anyone to the side of, Yep, now we can start that business. Basically, what I'm saying is this money is not going to return enough to fund the program, meaning our deficit and debt continues its steady upward march. And fourth, most of this money is being given, just given with no strings attached. Once you qualify, you get the money. Use it on whatever you want. So what if I was, say, a Hunter Biden? I guess I could just use $1,000 a month on hookers and crack. How convenient for me, right? <laughs> Wonderful. Personally, I don't agree with the way we dole out welfare money like SNAP, food stamps, already. My thought is that if you're on food stamps, which is all electronic now, it's all done on a debit card, 
we should be able to deny charges for certain things, things like smokes, alcohol, pop, candy, etc. I'm not saying we need to go back to government cheese and peanut butter, necessarily, but why should food stamps be able to be used for stuff other than survival? It's free money being given by our tax dollars. If I wouldn't go buy the panhandler on the corner a beer, why am I forced to do it through my taxes? Maybe that's just me. So although some would use this free cash responsibly, what percentage would use it on stuff that the rest of us would not want our money used for? And if that number is greater than 0%, eh, it's too much. But it turns out, <laughs> I'm just being a big old cotton-headed ninny-muggins. According to SteadyApp.com, there are 12 misconceptions about a guaranteed income that we silly beans always get wrong. What are those 12, you ask? Well, settle down, I was going to tell you. So, number one, guaranteed income has never been tried. Uh, no, we know it's been tried almost primarily done for very, very small groups of people for a short period of time, and it's been funded privately. So, yes, we already know this. Misconception number two, minimum wage laws are more important than guaranteed income. Well, truth be told, I don't really like either of those laws, to be honest. Minimum wage should be determined by capitalism. If you pay too little, you don't get employees, and you either work yourself to death or you go out of business. Not to mention, which I'm mentioning, so... Anyway, wages in different parts of the country should necessarily be different because of a wide range of costs of living. Misconception number three, systemic inequality will remain despite guaranteed income. Okay, I don't buy into the idea of systemic inequality, as it implies the system is responsible for people living in poverty. And to some degree, that's probably right. But the solution isn't to hand out more money, which is what's creating the problem in the first place. It's to do what Benjamin Franklin said, quote, we should make the poor uncomfortable and kick them out of poverty. See, that would mean make living in poverty so unbearable that you do anything you can to get out of it. Now, that literally is the government cheese and the embarrassment of tearing off the little food stamps. Misconception number four. There are already sufficient safety net policies in place. Okay, yeah, there's too many. Too poorly managed is the big problem, to be honest. These systems are fine in theory, but just as a Hardy's cashier worker job should never be considered a full-time living wage job, welfare should never be considered a way of life. The goal should be get on to help and get off of them as fast as possible. Misconception number five, guaranteed income will draw resources from existing programs. No, no, I don't think any of us have that misconception. We're not worried about that one at all. It'll just increase taxes and increase the deficit and increase the overall debt. Misconception number six, automation isn't a concern that necessitates guaranteed income. Okay, look, we've moved through various phases of industrialization in our history, Automation is just another phase, and we will adapt as we've done before. We're not going to automate ourselves into the animated movie WALL-E, where we just blob ourselves on our little floating chairs. Just as I'm not afraid of AI taking over the world, I'm not worried that automation will ever just do everything for us. Misconception number seven, guaranteed income will lead to a socialist state. Okay. Guaranteed income is literally socialism, or it's more accurately, it's communism. 
And I mean, that system has only disappeared or murdered or starved to death about 100 million people in the last 100 years that we know of. So I'm sure that this would be completely different, though. A central government providing our everything for us eventually leads to nothing but social poverty. This is literally a communist system, but it would pair nicely with our communist public school model. So, I mean, there is that. Misconception number eight, the United States cannot afford guaranteed income. All right. So I went to their little justification as to why this is a misconception. Their answer is, this is why we need to explain stuff better. But they offer no answer as to how the U.S. actually can afford this, just that they need to explain stuff better, which I agree with, actually, after reading that. Misconception number nine, incentives will be destroyed and people won't work. Okay, well, we've already destroyed incentives to work. With all of the welfare programs, too many people have decided that this is how they'll just live life. Just rely on the government teat forever. Misconception number 10. Guaranteed income doesn't help other forms of inequality. Well, this isn't a concern. I'm not interested in trying to create equality of outcomes for people. That's a Marxist desire, and it's impossible. Misconception number 11. Wealth gaps won't close with guaranteed income alone. Yeah, no kidding. A guaranteed income isn't meant to close wealth gaps. I mean, unless you bring everybody into that social poverty. But when you look at what SteadyApp.com says about this one, they reveal the real plan. They say, quote, we need to start somewhere. And then they follow that up with, quote, before we run, we need to walk, meaning the infrastructure and logistics must first be put in place. Over time, we can start introducing more advanced programs to help people more directly and immediately. <laughs> I see. Uh, paging Slippery, your slope is ready. Misconception number 12. Recipients will waste the money they get. Oh yeah, I would say that most recipients will waste the money. For those that don't need the money, it'll just be used for whatever. For some percentage in poverty, they'll continue to use any money they get on useless junk. Giving this money with no strings attached to people for doing nothing means it's just bonus money. They've got no stake in this money, so why would they care what it's used for? The reality is that a move toward a universal basic income seems like it's a very loving, very kind, very human American thing to do. Remember, if we loved people, we wouldn't have poor people. You know, except that, no, Jesus told his disciples that the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now, in context, this was the well-known story of the woman with the alabaster jar of expensive perfume who broke it and anointed Jesus with it. Judas was mad that this was wasted rather than sold to help the poor, which is not really what Judas was upset about. And then Jesus, alluding to his death and later to his ascension back to heaven, said that they, and by extension we, will always have the poor that we can help. And the reality is, there are those that would rather live in poverty as opposed to working. Proverbs 19.24 tells us that the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. Those that are lazy would rather starve to death than have to do the work to put food in their mouth. You know, can't somebody else do it? That's the mantra. This is the lead the horse to water, but you can't make him drink scenario. Oh, you mean I have to lower my head a little in order to drink this? We'll pass. Okay, more to the point of this article. We are absolutely biblically supposed to provide for widows and orphans, our families, 
our parents as they get older. We're also told by Paul that if you don't work, you don't eat. That seems, I don't know, pretty cut and dried. In context, Paul was warning against those in the church that were basically looking for the church to support them in their idleness. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. In that passage, there were three commands given. Three. And the commands that were given were given in the name of Jesus. The first, do not associate with those that choose idleness or laziness. The second, if you don't work, you don't eat. And the third, and for those choosing laziness, get to work and earn your living. And this just echoes what Adam was told by God as punishment for his sin. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So hard work is what it'll take to eat, implying if Adam didn't work, he wasn't going to be eating, and this process will continue until he dies. In fact, man, and I'd say mankind, was created with one component of their very being, being that of working. How many people do you know that retired to watch TV or play golf or go fishing, and within a few months, maybe a few years, they died? We were created to work, to stay busy. A brief story. I was interviewing about 15 years ago with an aluminum company. One of the engineers asked me a question that he said he asked everyone. If we hire you and you win the lottery tomorrow, are you out or would you continue to work? I thought for a moment and told him that although the prospect of just calling it quits is enticing at first, I believe that man was created to work, and to not work would leave a person feeling empty or unfulfilled. So I may do a lot of things, but I think I would continue to work because we were created to. He looked at me for a few seconds, as did the other two interviewers, and then he said, I've never heard anyone give an answer like that before, and I've asked a lot of people that question. That's a great answer. You know, but it's true. We were made to work. Just look at those that could work but choose to live off of the government. You can tell there's something off about them. They don't seem right. They're not living as they're created, and it leaves them vapid and empty. So let me wrap this up here. The Bible tells us to help others, as I said, but that's for us individually to decide what we want or need to do. This is not for the government to force us to be charitable to others. We need to decide to give and help as we're led by the Holy Spirit, and we and they need to work. We're commanded to work, and everything is to be done for God's glory, including working. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Proverbs 14.23 says, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. 
Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. And Proverbs 21.25 says, The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Are you getting the picture? We're created to work. We should work hard. We should work in a way that brings God glory. To not work, to just expect handouts, to be lazy, slothful, a sluggard, leads to poverty and leads to starvation, and this is by design. So a guaranteed income would not only move us down the road to socialism or communism, but it would start to destroy the part of man that was created to work. It would start to hollow out an important part of what makes man, man. And ultimately, a refusal to work, to provide for yourself, to pay your way, to provide for your family, is not glorifying to God. And although the Proverbs aren't commands, Paul did give commands. So I believe that intentional, persistent laziness, a refusal to work, regardless of your ability to work, is in fact sin. So rather than look for get-rich-quick schemes and lottery winnings, rather than counting the days until you don't have to work anymore, unless you're days from retirement, in which case I can't blame you, but make a plan for what's next. How can you bring God glory in your next phase of life? Rather than look for handouts, work. If you're able-bodied or in the electronic connected world we live in today, if you're able-minded, work. Work hard. Do everything as if you're working for God, because you ultimately are, and work in a way that no matter what you do, in all you do, you bring glory to God. Well, here we are. We've made it to the big dance, the big show, the big mamma jamma. Since last we met, we've moved about five or six years from the ratification of the Articles of Confederation, and the realization had set in that the Articles was an okay document. It did things, but it was not going to work long term. There were too many things that were too cumbersome, too many holes that needed to be filled, and too many things that just didn't seem to be what they needed in order to govern a country made up of states, states that wanted to have their own autonomy, but states that needed to have some sort of direction so they could move as a united country. The Congress, eh, I pretty much have to do this, right? assembled, still had a knife's edge they were balancing on, which seems incredibly dangerous. I would not recommend this. They were still a new country. They were still a little sore from life under the autocratic rule of the king. They were literally in search of the perfect Goldilocks document. Not too much, not too little. For this to work, the document had to be just right. Welcome back to the American Genesis, and welcome to the first episode of our walk through the Constitution of the United States. It's been just over 10 years since the Declaration of Independence was signed, 10 long, shaky, difficult years, but the country was hanging together. The revolution had concluded only a few years earlier. The United States of America was officially an independent country. With life as an independent country, trying to make their way in a world of well-established, long-standing, historically powerful countries, each of them waiting for these upstart rebellious colonists to fail, and fail spectacularly, so they could rush in and claim whatever they could, the charge was now to create something that would stand the test of time, addressing the current issues of their day, but also able to address whatever may come in the future. You know, no big whoop. When looking at the three main documents of our nation, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and now the Constitution of the United States, we see that there were only a few individuals that had somewhat of a key role in the documents, either 
writing, debating, or signing, although the committee members that debated the articles is apparently impossible to find. Benjamin Franklin, however, was the thread that ran through them all. And thank goodness, uh, no, thank God that he was there. The Constitutional Convention elected George Washington to preside over the convention. Then they proceeded to fall into a bunch of bickering and arguing about all of the issues that needed to be hashed out. They were in danger of just collapsing before they even got started. This is when Franklin stepped up. At 81 years old and in relatively poor health, he rose to make a motion, which I'll read verbatim. Quote, Mr. President, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks in close attendance and in continual reasonings with each other, with different sentiments on almost every question, is melancholy proof of the imperfection of the human understanding. We indeed seem to feel our own want of political wisdom since we have been running about in search of it. We have gone back to ancient history for models of government and examined the different forms of those republics which, having been formed with the seeds of their own dissolution, now no longer exist, and we have viewed modern states all around Europe but find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understandings? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend, or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in these sacred writings, in Psalm 117.1a, that except the Lord build the house, thy labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests, our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest." I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business, and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. I mean, wow, right? Just, just wow. Franklin has long been thought to be a deist believing in a higher power, just not sure what that power might be. It's possible that in his later years, he narrowed his focus to Jesus. 
but nobody really knows. But Franklin had been there since the beginning of this endeavor, starting with the writing of the Declaration of Independence. And his memory, being sharp, his mind clear, even in his advanced years, could remember what had been done as these rebels put everything on the line and declared that they were no longer willing to exist under tyrannical rule. To that end, and I should have covered this when I covered the Declaration, but look, I'm not a professional yet, but I wanted to read the prayer offered by Jacob Duche on September 7th, 1774 to open the first Continental Congress prior to the drafting of the Declaration of Independence. And we read, Our Lord, our Heavenly Father, high and mighty King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who dost from thy throne behold all the dwellers on earth and reignest with power supreme and uncontrolled over all the kingdoms, empires, and governments, Look down in mercy, we beseech thee, on these our American states who have fled to thee from the rod of the oppressor and thrown themselves on thy gracious protection, desiring to be henceforth dependent only on thee. To thee have they appealed for the righteousness of their cause. To thee do they now look up for that countenance and support which thou alone canst give. Take them, therefore, Heavenly Father, under thy nurturing care. Give them wisdom and counsel and valor in the field. Defeat the malicious designs of our cruel adversaries. Convince them of the unrighteousness of their cause. And if they persist in their sanguinary purposes of own unerring justice, sounding in their hearts, constrain them to drop the weapons of war from their unnerved hands in the day of battle. Be thou present, O God of wisdom, and direct the counsels of this honorable assembly. Enable them to settle things on the best and surest foundation, that the scene of blood may be speedily closed, that order, harmony, and peace may be effectually restored, and truth and justice, religion and piety prevail and flourish amongst the people. Preserve the health of their bodies and vigor of their minds, shower down on them and the millions they here represent such temporal blessings as thou seest expedient for them in this world, and crown them with everlasting glory in the world to come. All this we ask in the name and through the merits of Jesus Christ, thy Son and our Savior. Amen. I mean, look, if you know if that's the best you could come up with, I mean, They'll have to do. Uh, So back to our current point in time. The Constitutional Convention, well, immediately after Franklin made his motion, I'd like to say that the founders all dropped to their knees and had themselves a little old revival. I'd like to say that, but unfortunately, Franklin's appeal was denied. It was seconded, but it was not affirmed. Now, This is not necessarily because they were adhering to the future constitutional amendment that's not in the Constitution or any founding document of separation in church and state. No, no, no. There were a few issues here. First, unlike today where pretty much any lay person could have offered a prayer, the method of that day was to have a member of clergy formally discharge their duties of their call. Additionally, this wouldn't have been a matter of just calling up the pastor to stop by. The motion to have a member of the clergy attend to prayers every morning must be a paid formal position of the Congress, because that's how things were done back then. Second, and it may have tied into the first point, Franklin noted at the bottom of his speech, quote, the convention, except three or four persons, thought prayers unnecessary. Now, like I said, we don't know why they felt that way or even if they actually felt prayer 
was unnecessary or if they didn't think paying for it would be worth the return on investment. Regardless, his motion failed. However, the persistence of Franklin and the continued stalemate of the convention for the next few days led General George Washington, the president of the convention, to lead the delegates to a prayer service on July 4, 1787, at the Reformed Calvinist Lutheran Church in Philadelphia to listen to a message from Reverend William Rogers, culminating in a prayer for the country, the convention, and each member. His prayer is as follows. As this is a period, O Lord, big with events, impenetrable by any human scrutiny, we fervently recommend to thy fatherly notice that august body assembled in the city who compose our federal convention. Will it please thee, O thou eternal I am, to favor them from day to day with thy immediate presence? Be thou their wisdom and their strength. Enable them to devise such measures as may prove happily instrumental for healing all divisions and promoting the good of the great whole that the United States of America may furnish the world with one example of a free and permanent government which shall be the result of human and mutual deliberation and which shall not, like all other governments, whether ancient or modern, spring out of mere chance or be established by force." We close this, our solemn address, by saying, as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ hath taught us, our Father, who art in heaven. And then they all joined in in the reciting of the Lord's Prayer. Now, after this, I think we'd be crazy to think that everything went just, you know, perfectly perfect. But after this, the members of the convention went back to the Pennsylvania State House and got to work. And that's where we'll end this episode of the American Genesis. So let me wrap up by saying this. Prayer always works. Always. Now, we may not always get the answer we want, but for those who are born again, our prayers always make it to God and are always answered. Our job is to pray for the will of God, to pray as much as possible with the mind of God. Most of the time, we pray for our desires to be fulfilled, whether that's a solution to a problem, the healing of an illness, or health, wealth, and prosperity. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Those guys don't actually pray. They declare, you know, give God his marching orders. But for most of us, when we pray, we tend to shorten the Lord's prayer down a bit, leaving out that your will be done part. Despite that, our prayers are still heard and answered, sometimes with no, sometimes with wait, but also sometimes with yes. Keep in mind, regardless of how our diligent prayers are answered, the plan that God has laid out for us is better than any plan you or I could come up with. And it's our job to pray to God that our desires align with His perfect will. So pray, seek God's will, and pray. Now on the next episode of the American Genesis, in our look at the Constitution, we're going to actually get into the Constitution. <laughs> Crazy, I know. So until next time, pray. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. 
Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.